Hello, Rankin Reviewers. You are now listening to the 81st episode of Rankin Review. And my guest, Jason Dubray, and myself, your host and Madam Canadian, Larry Parsons, are going to be looking at six Stephen King adaptations. That's right, we're going round two with Stephen King. So I hope you're into a little bit of more in-depth discussion, and I hope that uh, you will go into it understanding that there will be the typical spoilers for the movies and books being discussed, as well as possibly some coarse language. Please tell your friends about Rankin Review, this uh, fun little movie podcast. You can find it on iTunes, you can find it on Stitcher, you can find it on Facebook. And check out the website at rankinreview.ca. But in the meantime, let's get to Maine, to Castle Rock, and to Derry, and all the things dark and creepy about the world of Stephen. Uh, hello and welcome to the 81st episode. Wow, 81. 81 episodes of Rankin Review. <laughs> and uh, I've got Jason Debray in my filthy garage to record. <laughs> this is weird because I don't think I've had a conversation with you in maybe 12 years. It's a long time. Yeah. Long and time. Uh, even when we went to school together, like we didn't hang out a lot. I knew you a bit, but I didn't mm-hmm. know you a whole bunch. Yeah. But what do I do? I, uh, what I do know about you is that you're deep into theater. And yep. you're deep into movies. You post on your Facebook page your favorite movies of the year. So you're, you're. I do. Yeah. If I may say a little bit of a nerd about it, <laughs> I say this. <laughs> Which is, is good. Man, I say this as a man who hosts a movie reviewing <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> stones being thrown. Um, uh, so I figured you would make a good guest, and I gave you a bunch of options of what you would think you might find interesting, and it'd be a good excuse for us to chat again. Yeah. And here we are landing on Stephen King. This is the second episode that I've done now that will be dedicated exclusively to Stephen King. And I guess to start off, I will just ask, why Stephen King? I, I can probably go back and credit Stephen King as the reason that I'm a reader. Okay. Um, kind of moving beyond, you know, kind of the, the elementary school books into something that was a little bit more adult and I it was the summer when I was turning 11 years old and I read Pet Cemetery um, 
it's funny that Pet Cemetery changed my life, but Deep in many ways. Pool, hey? Yeah. Yeah. See, my first King book was It, believe it or not. So, <laughs> so yeah. you started. Yeah, you started I also big. started in the deep end of the pool. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, much. I think those two may represent, even in the King universe, two of his more nastier bits of work. It, it sure is. Yeah. 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 So uh, you read something absolutely brutal that, that basically killed an entire family. <laughs> yes. And you thought, this is for me. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't understand it. I. I hadn't even really watched that many horror movies as, as a kid growing up, um, but there was something about the literature that got me, and then, uh, and then I went through book after book after book, because I didn't really consider myself a reader um, right. until, until later on, and, and then uh, even more so in, in high school, uh, it was encouraged a bit. Um, once I got to the late part of high school, I had a few English teachers saying, so how about something besides Stephen King now? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Well, you could dedicate your life to reading Stephen King. He's insanely prolific. Yeah. Even in his, quote, you know, twilight retirement years, as he sometimes calls these, he still spits out a book a year, whether he wants to or mm -hmm. not, it seems. Now, did you, you, you read on writing. I have, right? yes. Yeah. Did you, uh, do you remember that section where he said, well, they think I'm, I, I write a lot, but that there was, you're talking about a gentleman who wrote a book a day. Yeah. In there and he tells this story about that yeah, and there are people prolific doesn't necessarily mean good yeah, yeah no, no just because you have a ridiculous output that means you know you're way to stick to your guns and way to get work at, yeah. but that work's got to be interesting yeah and I think for the most part King is interesting I am a defender and I am a fan mm -hmm. there are a few things even including on the list that we're going to talk about today that I realize I cannot really speak rationally about I'm just too personally connected to them so that's that's fine. I'm just I'm laying that caveat out right now. So the book, is, the books influenced your or biased your review of the movies we in some covered? cases, yes. Because I tried to remove myself a little bit yeah. rewatching them. I uh, I'm I, I'm sort of an in King world, and uh, I didn't reread every single one of these. I'm not going to lie to you for for this, but uh, most of them are fresh in my mind, mm -hmm. with the notable exception of. Uh, Needful Things and Dreamcatcher. Oh, okay. I have not read those in a good while, but I do have both of them here. I brought yeah. out my big hard covers. Yeah, and nice to show off. I, uh, I just remember when Needful Things came out, and that cover is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I told this a little bit in when when Rob and I talked about Stephen King last time. I struggled in school particularly because I was a slower reader, mm -hmm. and I got it into my head as I sometimes do. Put myself through a trial. But if I could read the biggest book on Dad's bookshelf, no one could tell me that I had a problem reading. The biggest book on Dad's bookshelf was It yeah. by Stephen King. And I fought my way through it. It took me, I think, well over a year to read the mm -hmm. whole thing. And I honestly, there was large sections of it, the dairy history stuff, a lot of stuff oh, yeah. with the adults that I really didn't comprehend, mm -hmm. but I made myself read. Yeah. And uh, because it was about kids and because I connected really quickly to this idea of this evil creature that could take the shape of whatever your fears were, I was hooked into the Stephen King universe. Yeah. And uh, if you know Stephen King, there's a ripple effect to the Stephen King universe. Although these characters are mainly focused on an it, you will bump into them in oh, other Stephen King books. Mm -hmm. And it sort of rewards the someone who reads a lot of books get more, more out of them. So... Uh, I, I'm a collector, I have that itch in me, and when I realized that all of his books were one world, well, that just got me. It's so cool. And yeah. it's in Maine. I yeah. mean, it's such an, an interesting location. Uh, but right within this book we're talking about here, we have Alan Pangolin. Yeah. 
who's the main character in... Oh, sorry. No, no, that's good. Go ahead. The main character in in Dark Half and in uh, Needful Things. Mm -hmm. And that's true in the books, and we got two different actors playing him. But yeah, yeah, he's succeeded uh, into the sheriff's seat by his previous uh, guy who got killed by a rabid dog in Cujo. Yeah. That was the previous sheriff of Castle Rock. And we're going to talk about the sheriff from 1981 to 1991. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, like I said, I could nerd out really hard about Stephen King. Is there anything you wanted to say by way of introduction before we introduce the movies we're going to talk about and get going? No, not really. It just, uh, it was was great to uh, be able to, you know, relive some memories. Uh, by watching these movies, some of some of the movies I haven't seen in uh, several years, a couple I hadn't seen before actually, oh, nice. and um, uh, I I have read the uh, source material source material uh, for all except for one, so I will I will preview that that I haven't read Firestarter, okay, so uh, so that's uh, I don't know if that's going to impact how. <laughs> It's my review or not. In a way, it'll be a nice subjective approach to the movie. Does the movie work? Yeah. Because a lot of times I'll be saying, well, this is cool enough in the movie, but it's better in the book, right? Well, I, 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 I'm, almost, I'm willing to say for the other ones that the book or the source material is better than the movie. Right. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Well, we'll, 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 we'll go we'll, case by we'll case. We'll talk about here. that, we'll yeah. We'll go case by case. Uh, for the record, the six Stephen King adaptations that Jason Dubray and myself are going to discuss today... We're going to look at the 1984 version of The Children of the Corn, starring Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton, mm-hmm. who uh, some people might remember from 30-something. That's not too obscure a reference nowadays. <laughs> He's a character actor. He's yeah. been in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Children of the Corn. Uh, then we're going to talk about Firestarter, starring a very young Drew Barrymore. Uh, we're going to talk about Pennywise, the clown, mm-hmm. and It's... Uh, 1990 television adaptation of one of King's more sprawling epics. Um, we are going to talk about The Dark Half from director George A. Romero, who's had a lot of fan service on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And we are going to talk about, oh my god, where am I missing? Needful Things, yep. starring Ed Harris, set in Castle Rock once again. And uh, last, but maybe least... We will talk about Dreamcatcher. We'll we'll see. We'll see. I don't know where you land. I don't know where you land. Uh, So that is the business at hand. Let's jump in. From Stephen King, the author of Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine, an adult nightmare. Children of the Corn. Stephen King's Children of the Corn, an adult nightmare. So, it's really weird to me that Children of the Corn, of all the great, you know, pieces of Stephen King fiction, is one of these things that has created a franchise in movies. (laughs) It's strange to me. I mean, it's not that the idea of children worshipping some crazy god that he who walks behind the rose isn't creepy or the idea of this cult that if you get past a certain age you must be killed to you know maintain the purity of the world all of that stuff is creepy but would you ever have imagined that there would be like nine children of the corn movies i i remember reading the story and thinking is there a feature-length film in this 
you well, know, it just seemed like an incident. Yeah. Like one of those, and that's what I like about a lot of King's short stories is they'll have this like horrifying, weird incident, but then it's like, okay, I, I didn't think it would be one that that they could do much with. Yeah. And apparently, it how. <laughs> and especially in the novel, too, the main couple, Bert and Vicky, as they're traveling through the, these cornfields, are bickering at each other and mm-hmm. are really unlikable characters yeah. in a lot of ways. They're they're kind of terrible in a way that Stephen King seems to love to write. Mm-hmm. To the point where you're you're maybe not it's horrifying their fate, but as far you're not don't feel bad for them. You know, you're maybe not quite ambivalent because it's a bad way to go, <laughs> but it doesn't hurt you to your core because you don't like these people. No, I think that you're right. I think that this 1984 movie, if anything proves the case that this maybe doesn't stretch into a feature-length thing. And in order to try to stretch it into a feature-length movie, they have to, you know... Invent a whole bunch of stuff. Invent a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, I don't know necessarily what that added beyond the creepy premise that has already been discussed. A bunch of children hear voices, well, led by one particularly bad kid... Mm. uh, Tell by the hat. Isaac, not Malachi. Malachi was the, the guy who did all the stabbing. Neither of them looked very happy. No, no. They're they, frowning through the whole thing. Again, you don't necessarily believe that anyone would listen to these people talking and think, yeah, you know what, this guy's got shit figured out. <laughs> I do have to admit, though, that in 1984, yeah. when I was eight, yeah. when I watched this movie, particularly the opening sequence in which all of the elders of the town mm-hmm. are massacred in a coffee shop, I found intensely disturbing. Watching it again now, it just washed over me like nothing, but in 1984, that was intensely disturbing. And that's the prism from which my review of this movie will come from. There's stuff in this movie that I think was pretty good in 1984, but I don't know that unless you're looking through the lens of pure nostalgia, you're going to get a lot of value out of watching this version of Children of the Corn in 2016. But I'm willing to hear a second opinion. I'm I'm going to disagree on a few things here. I'm going to make a pretty bold statement to start off with. Because I've watched all of these fresh. I mean, I had a history with some of them. Some of them I I have no history with. Right. Of the six movies we're reviewing, I actually think this one has the best opening. I I, I liked it. It felt like an authentic town. I mean, I knew what was going to happen. Yet, uh, it just the the people that the casting they just look like people who belong in that type of a town and the after church crowd, and and then the violence that happens. Um, I I quite like that. I think that opening was good, and then the introduction of the couple, and I think they really soften this couple for this movie. Absolutely, because they are likable. Linda Hamilton in particular. Um, even though this is probably uh, um, gives her the least to do of the movies in her, you know, or at I least the famous it. movies in yeah. her career. No, she's not the badass than the ta- Linda Hamilton for no. Terminator 2, unfortunately. She's kind of a f- more flirty type she's of... She's fun, bouncy, yeah. these need to be rescued type of character that is very common a in A little bit. Story. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Which, uh, towards the end, that, that was unfortunate. But I like the opening scene where they're introduced and... The motel and even the like the cheesy thing where she's singing and I didn't know that Linda Hamilton could sing <laughs> so I, maybe I was just uh, 
Well, it's a shortcut to make me like a character, right? I've said before. It is. The shortest path to make me like you is if you make me laugh, even if that's an uncomfortable laugh. Mm -hmm. Just her being unselfconscious around him tells us a lot about their relationship. Well, I also interpreted that she was a lot happier because it was before she met James Cameron. Right. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) That didn't Uh, end well. (laughs) I think there's a few moments where they hint at what was in the story. Mm -hmm. Bert loses a temper with her a few times, but then almost immediately will apologize. He, he, you get the feeling like he has this line that he reaches, and then he has to sort of toggle back a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And uh, so I appreciate what they're trying to do. They're paying respect to the book. But in the book, it's it's frankly, or this, like it's a short story, but in the story, mm-hmm. it's almost problematic. They, they accidentally hit a kid on the road, yeah. and uh, they're horrified by this. They find out uh, upon investigation that the kid had run out into the road with his throat cut. He was effectively dead before they hit him. Mm-hmm. Still, I mean, the impact of this, this is a disturbing thing that happened to him. And in the story, she all but, like, throws this in his face again and again that he, you know, he's a child murderer and that, mm. you know, he's an idiot. And, like, you really just don't like her. And I think that, yeah, that's counterintuitive if yeah. you're going to present even a good or bad fate. We want to cheer for these people, you know? But do you want to cheer for them in the story? I think we do. I think really? for me, in, in both, like in the short story, I, you, I guess you don't want them to be sacrificed to the god of these evil children, but you don't feel <laughs> They kind of deserve it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but is that what the story is saying? Maybe if they were nicer people, they wouldn't, you know... I don't think that. I don't think anybody in that cafe at the beginning would have been spared, be they nice or not. They're just yeah, too old. No. Um, I could have done without the narration done by the mm-hmm. little kid mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah uh, there's well, something a little bit sing-songy about his delivery and uh, I don't know it, it kind of kills some of the stakes for me and uh, whenever he is talking he is very much laying out exposition that the screenwriters clearly haven't been able to solve how to tell us yeah. any other way yeah exactly <laughs> well and I got a little bit confused about who the narrator was yeah because the boy who runs across the road i thought he was the narrator but then he i thought oh this is really clever they've they've killed off the narrator yeah uh but no i thought well ahead of their time this is long before (laughs) oz or any of these other show shows or movies that do this um but 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 no it was the other (laughs) the other boy who looked very very similar yeah um yeah most of the kids are 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 terrible and (laughs) In many ways, that and, and a little bit the special effects towards the end of the film are really kind of the downfall in many ways. I did like... Um, Courtney Gaines? I, I, I like the, the little kid who plays Sarah, Sarah oh, and okay. Marie McAvoy. I, I didn't mind the other... Uh, Courtney Gaines, I didn't mind. Yeah. Um, served, served the role well. Uh, those two sounded like they could act. Um, just the, the, the one who played um, Isaac. Yeah. And I, I know he was meant to be annoying, but it was... I, I don't... At the expense of the like, stairs. He's kind of like... Sc- yeah. It, he has a weirdly... Few, like a yeah, he's going. His voice was changing voice. or something. Yeah, he runs with the fry kid in The Simpsons. I'll take your order now! But like, by the rationale of the movie, that's not great either. You'd think no. if your voice is starting to change, that you're going to be next up on the chopping block, right? Like, he looks horrifying. I mean, he looks like... He looks Gage the towards the end of uh, of Pet Cemetery. He uh, looks the part, but he doesn't necessarily deliver it 100%. I understand why there's a cult sort of thing around the movie because of those two central kids. Isaac and Mordecai, I think, to certain people, might just come off as particularly creepy. 
But yeah. I go back to where I started when I said, like, I'm amazed this is franchised because it's not a difficult thing to pull off. I think that the story is actually disturbing and creepy. Oh, it is, yeah. Like, uh, uh, but I don't think that the movie is disturbing and creepy. And I don't think either iteration of the movie that they've done is particularly disturbing or creepy. And the fact that they made so many of them. They're horror movies based around a cast almost entirely of children, which is makes your productions so much more difficult. Oh, like, yeah. Why isn't there a franchise of, I don't know, The Night Flyer or The Graveyard Shift or, or like yeah, that's almost like any other Stephen King short story that's been adapted? Like, I don't understand. Uh, I would encourage anybody to read the short story because I think it accomplishes everything it sets out to do mm-hmm. as far as, you know, putting a knife in your belly and twisting it a little bit is like, yeah, that's, that's a cruel fate. Um, the movie doesn't deliver that. Uh, everything that is in the movie, especially the deeper we get into it, uh, once we get to the climactic thing, it's, it's every horror movie you've ever seen in a lot of ways. There's not a lot of surprises to be found in the third act. Um, no, the third act is, is absolutely awful. Mm-hmm. And, and they, also, they also change the end. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, a lot. That's what they do. Like Stephen King says when he sells his stories or his novels to Hollywood, he just kisses them goodbye. Yeah. You know, and Which is wise. Uh, you know, like yeah, better attitude. He cashes the check, and then your story is else. your story. You wrote that story; it will always be there. Yeah, you sell the rights to that story. Someone else is going to make that film. That's mm-hmm. their film, right? <laughs> it's a different medium. Yeah, so it's tricky. It's I, tricky. I, I I would say, I'm, I mean, nothing. None of these movies, to be honest, scared me. Um, but maybe it's just I, I remember seeing some of them when I was younger yeah. and having a different reaction. Um, but I think the first five minutes is effective. Right. But that's five minutes. It's a 95 minutes. 95 minutes. Minute. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing I would say, there's a scene where Peter Horton <laughs> gives this huge speech to the kids. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Which just is nauseating <laughs> to me. Like, first of all, you're not going to reach these kids. Clearly, they are past the point of no return. They've murdered all of their parents. They've been at this for quite a fucking while, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You're not going to turn them around with, with words. And I don't know how he is supposed to represent something particularly rice, righteous. Like, it goes against the whole idea if this is about sort of religious extremism gone amok. All he's basically saying is, you know, be extreme about my religion, not yours. <laughs> Uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't but, but work. But he's a moral authority because he's a doctor. He's a doctor. And, and he like screams man. that from the beginning to the end. Like yeah. every situation. <laughs> which I get, like it makes sense that he's fairly recently a doctor. So yeah. then he's, you know, throwing that in everybody's face. But uh, he thinks he can he can fix these things. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the end, you know, first story about a bunch of basically crazy religious children who walk out of the corn with knives and sickles to kill anyone above a certain age it kind of just lies there doesn't it yeah they have some nice still photographs Linda Hamilton in the Christ pose there (laughs) being sort of crucified I I don't um and you know the yeah some of the acting ruins the scene in the church there when they're when the the guy's about to turn nineteen and she's getting carved up, yeah, and he's so excited about it, yeah, go see God or whatever. Or further to the whole ranting against their religion. At that point, he's giving this rant. He has seen the eerie green light. 
he's seen the mound of dirt moving around in the corn. Like, clearly he who lives or walks behind the rows is something physical and tangibly real. Like, that at this point is undeniable. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's sort of like Indiana Jones world where everything is true. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Kali God that you can pull out a guy's living heart, that's true. Yeah. And the Jesus Christ story is absolutely true. And presumably any other myth or legend that you've ever heard is absolutely well, true. Well, you have to accept that. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. but the, the, the children are more horrifying, potentially. Yeah. Potentially, until they speak. Or try to act, uh, then uh, the way they're costumed and everything. Uh, yeah. I, you know, to me they're scarier than the monster, and yeah, that that part and just simply doesn't work. It's a story that's dark enough that it doesn't need to have a moral to it. It can just be a dark horror mm-hmm. story, and just let it be that. Yeah, and, and also, wh- why is it that kids who are dressed up? like they're Amish or something are always supposed to be just horrifying and scary you know? I think in the story they basically dedicated their lives to tending the crops so yeah, they're so. just being farmers I guess but, but they did, I, I don't think any farmer in Nebraska would actually right. look like that to, you know ride the stereotype but if you're going to spend the year or the summer working on a, on a farm I say just buy the overall <laughs> just, just go for it it is a power she does not want a power she cannot control we haven't got her yet. We'll have her. Show me a warrant and get the hell off my land. We don't need a warrant. And each night she prays to be just like every other child. But there are those who will do everything in their power to find her, to control her. We're going to be close, she and I. Oh, yes. We're going to be very close. And maybe to destroy her. You're going to have to burn it down, honey. Burn it all down. Charlie McGee is Stephen King's Firestarter. So, Drew Barrymore was a straight-up superstar in the 80s. This mm-hmm. was the first of two Stephen King movies that she did back-to-back. She did this and Cat's Eye, mm-hmm. a little anthology movie. Same year, I think, right? Um, yep, pretty much back to back. Yeah. Um, this was definitely where Stephen King fever had certainly ignited. You could mm-hmm. release anything with Stephen King's name on it. It was a license to print money. Again, uh, I'm a Stephen King fan. It doesn't necessarily mean that oh, everything that he touches is genius. Mm-hmm. I think Firestarter is one of his most underrated books in a lot of ways. It's definitely one of his 70s books. It has a lot of momentum to it, and it's younger Stephen mm-hmm. King feeling. And he makes reference to this world of the shop, which will later get incorporated into this government agency, which starts to sort of play its wheels in the Dark Tower universe. But none of this is all fully formed yet. At this time, we're basically looking at the shop, which is the super secret government agency, is doing experiments (laughs) clandestinely on university students. Two students who are part of this study fall in love and produce a child. And coincidentally, they're two people who reacted okay to the serum they were given in that they started to develop telekinetic powers and didn't just go crazy and claw their eyes out of their head, which is what a lot of other people who took the serum did. But the shop takes special interest when they realize that these two have a child and Mm -hmm. uh, even as a baby when she gets upset, shit gets hot, shit bursts into flames, she has this innate power and potentially some danger to it. 
Now, I've said in the past Stephen King has a prolivity, or a proclivity, pardon me, to paint in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie is just this darling little girl who wants only to do good. She's a pure spirit, mm-hmm. a bright flame of good. And she's unfortunately sort of counterposed by this Rainbird character, oh which is a uh, very unfortunate cliche of a character. And if you think George C. Scott's hitting it hard in the movie, it is way, way fucking more. worse uh. in, in the book. But what he does effectively create is of evil that as, is as big as this girl's sort of purity. So that when she does have to unleash the fire within her, and she does, uh, we can still like this little girl who causes people horrible, painful deaths. I think that the movie is a fairly authentic translation of the book, but somehow to me just less exciting than the book. Mm -hmm. There's a momentum issue that I have with the movie. But really the beats are there. There's some strong performances. I would not steer someone away from Firestarter. But I'm here to get your opinion. Okay. Uh, Well, it's Carrie Jr., Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and in in both cases, these are really, really nice girls, but there's still this emotional development that has to happen, and there are moments where they're gonna, you know, emote extremely, and then their powers will manifest. Yes, and um, just to me, there's an enormous there's a world of difference between Carrie and Firestarter and I you know I mean not every now Brian De Palma right now I don't know about but Brian De Palma in the 70s you know uh, uh, he you know it was gold like what he could do was gold but also the actors but I look at this cast and we have three Academy Award winners yeah um, all they all won their Oscars in the 70s um, then we have Martin Sheen who you know, I I think because he's been in a lot of stuff, but he's still underrated. I mean, yeah. he doesn't get the credit he deserves. He'll get um, a lifetime Oscar at some point. At some point, else. they'll do something like that. Yeah. Like Apocalypse Now, they yeah. paid attention to Duvall and, of course, Brando, but yeah. he drives Apocalypse Now. Um, then we have very, very young Drew Barrymore, and very, very young Drew Barrymore needed uh, a stronger director yeah, than this. So. I, I think that's a... What what I'm noticing with the six films, except there's going to be an exception that we get to talk about at another point, but, um, you know, it's just the, the director is so important to how successful this is going to be. Um, the writing just can't always match. There's a, a few exceptions, um, not necessarily the ones we're talking about, but the writing just cannot be as strong as the source material. Uh, I had a lot of problems with this and I as I was watching it um, George C. Scott I was thinking okay well he's I'm so torn on this and right now I'm at the point where I I just absolutely hate it. Right. Like to me, this is he's he's some Just sort of uh, well, and also he's he's supposed to be playing a Native American. Yes, um, they soft shoe this in the movie as much as they can. Well, but yeah, but it's yeah. It's when I actually, I think they, I, I actually didn't realize he was. I thought he just had this creepy assassin's ponytail, or yeah. like it was like eighties eighties villain type of thing. But um, I I did not like. 
I did not like his performance and the child molestation aspect of this, and I don't know how how that's explained if in, in the book if it makes more sense. Like what? Like he's trying to capture her. Yeah. I don't know to, that he it's, wants it's, to have sex with her. I don't think there is a sexual angle to it. This is all, again, and I'm going to apologize to anybody because this is completely insensitive to the rich culture of Native American people, mm-hmm. but in the black and white, good and evil world of Stephen King, Rainbird's playing for the evil, mm-hmm. and he believes that if he kills this gifted child, that she will give him a glimpse of her power, and that somehow he will become greater for doing it. But in his head, the way to kill this little girl, because he's not used to killing this little girl, is to befriend her, to make her love him. And at the moment when she is the most trusting of him and is just as happy as Peach, to kill her very quickly. Mm -hmm. He still wants to kill her, but he doesn't want to make her scared or to suffer. For some reason, in Rainbird's world, (laughs) this is is a nice thing that he's doing. Mm -hmm. There's also another angle that I think is better explored in the book than in the movie, of people being worried about what will happen with Charlie when she reaches puberty. Mm-hmm. Because uh, this whole psychic phenomenon, and again, it's explored in a lot of other Stephen King's books. Some of them are called People's Shining, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Breakers, if you're into the Dark Tower universe. People that have these gifts are and play important roles all throughout yeah. Stephen King's literature. And uh, the doctor who was part of the original experiments who was killed very brutally by Rainberg about Yeah, he's trying to get his power or something yeah. too? Or, well, he's, or a he's trying to stop him? He's a doctor, so yeah. he's a, a, an important man. But mm-hmm. he was also getting in the way of what they wanted to do. Clearly, the evil government people want to weaponize Charlie. The doctor wanted basically her eradicated because he was scared that when, her, when she reaches fruition of her powers, when she hits puberty and her, you know, glands start going crazy, that she could, with a sh- uh, just a thought, you know, split the world or, or ignite a fire that no one could put out or any other unimaginable thing, raise the temperature of the world. So, like, they don't know if she has a limit to her power. Mm-hmm. So there is a school of thought that she is a very dangerous thing that should be killed. Yeah. And that's not... Cleanly addressed in the movie. In it's the just movie, a, it's, it's just, a chase scene from the beginning. Yeah. You know, we want to get her. We want to use her as a weapon. We want to, you mm-hmm. know, basically keep her in our zoo. And there was a war. The Martin Sheen character definitely wanted that. The doctor wanted to have her put down. The doctor has moved out of the way so they can move forward with the shop business. Anyway, uh, like the, the the opening to the film is bad. I mean, it just. It just starts off, and then we have a bunch of these really badly filmed flashbacks to try to bring us set up the, to story. the story. Like the Heather Locklear's entire role is through flashback. Yeah, um, it's, it's crazy to think like Heather Locklear. I don't think I, I don't think of her as like the, one of the great actors of all time. Right. But she sure has improved since that movie because she's a recognizable. She's face. T- she's. Yeah, she's. Uh, she, I think she's, she's got terrible. About eight lines in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, she's in more uh, scenes than that, but she, yeah, it's yeah, not. She doesn't have a lot to say. Uh, yeah, maybe that explains why Drew Barrymore's performance is the way it is too, because she learned how to speak from uh, spending time with her mother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's the very sort of Stephen King setup. Is like they're in the middle of a chase and an adventure, yeah. and we find out why they're in the middle of this adventure as we go. And the movie's loyal to the format of the book, but like I say somehow the book feels like it's moving faster than mm-hmm. the movie. And almost always the reverse is true. You know, usually the book feels like, you know, it's 
way more than a movie can be. It's like the <laughs> the a richer, much more slow version of, of what you're going to get, this Coles Notes film version. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somehow the movie feels like it's stuck in about knee-deep mud. I still think it gets the beats out of the story, and I still think that there's some good payoff, like centerpiece sequences to it. But it's hard to get super excited about Firestarter. Well, you said there are some performances that you like. Yeah. Which performance are those? Well, I'm going to defend George C. Scott. I know that it's uncomfortable that, uh, you know, this is... If you're going to have... Well, it's not his... Yeah, that part's uncomfortable in the writing, but... It's the character that's problematic. I think he's earnestly trying to give that character as as was written in the screenplay. And I don't think he sucks at it. I have... Maybe even irrationally, <laughs> uh, a fan of Martin Sheen. I just, I, he's the best to me. In I the just film. like Martin Sheen generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if he's in a bad movie, he's going to be really good in it. Um, and uh, I think he, he has a great scene with uh, is it David Keith? Yes, yeah, it David is. David Keith, Keith yeah. When uh, David Keith's had all of his gifts suppressed, but he's sort of been uh, hiding his meds and, and sort of building up his powers. And he does a little test to see if he can pull a mind psych on, yeah. on Martin Sheen character and he pulls it off brilliantly but I think that Martin Sheen even though he's the victim of the gag just acts circles around him in that scene yeah, acts circles around <laughs> everybody the, yeah the only person who matches Sheen in this movie is George C. Scott and yeah maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being hard on the character I don't want to come across like I'm being hard on George C. Scott I, I have no idea other than for a paycheck why he did this right um you know, it's but, but King was so hot. At the I mean, time. that's the thing. Yeah, it, there were was it four movies in 1984? Yeah, four Stephen King movies. So, but yeah, it's and then we have Art Carney um, and uh, Louise Fletcher, uh, who are the other two Academy Award winners, and those representing the life, 100% pure, wholesome, good but, folk. But I kept thinking at the end, not to bring in other movies, but it's a pretty sad situation when the safest place for this little girl <laughs> is with the evil nurse from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Nurse Ratchet's going to uh, raise raise her now. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, what, like what do you think? I mean, we—I guess we can't criticize Barrymore at that time. I'm not going to be hard on Barrymore, and I do think there are like she's hot and cold depending on the scene. Uh, but I do think there are times where where she brings it fairly well. There are times when she is scared, and I believe that she is scared. And mm. uh, as much as I hate the fan effect, whenever she uses her powers, oh, it's ter- like the, yeah, the the, uh, the wind machine. Yeah, we are no evils happening as soon as it's that wind machine. That takes me a little bit out of it. The hair flutter, but oh. I mean, as far as believing that she's pissed off and killing these people who have hurt her, or her mother, or her father, or whoever that she's mad at, but that she's still enough of a little girl that the idea that she might hurt the horses in the barn terrifies her. Mm-hmm. And I think she plays that fairly well. And I think that's not an easy thing to ask of a kid in the single-digit age category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, 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 when it, she was crying and when she was upset, I, I, I got that. I didn't, I didn't think she was... I didn't believe her when she was scared. I didn't believe her when she was happy. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it's the stakes problem. And I think, like, scene to scene, David Keith, I believe, you know, he's looking over his shoulder and he's nervous. I believe that he, he's nervous, but... When the bad goes away, Drew Barrymore just defaults to precious little girl. Like, yes. she doesn't believe the stakes, and that I maybe, maybe hurt some of the suspense, too. Um, David Keith, he was like one of those like bad, over-the-top Stephen King film performances. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't care. There have been way worse. 
They're, oh, they're much, much worse than <laughs> this. No, no. Way worse. I know, I know. And he was playing the righteously good father figure. He was going to do anything to protect his daughter. And I think in a very basic, Cole's notes fine. He's fine. He certainly is not exceptional. He's certainly, like, we talked through the whole movie. He's essentially the main character. And we've just yeah, he's talked the lead. about him. Yeah, yeah I know. We're just talking about him now, so I guess that doesn't... Well, they, they put a cast of people who are so much better... He's fine, him. But, I, but yeah. I, again, I'm not sure if Stephen King was was money. Yeah. Why this guy was was the given guy. this role then? If if they can get Martin Sheen, I mean, and, you know, Martin Sheen was a lot more effective in the Dead Zone, yeah. uh, which I'm oddly enough I'm kind of mixed on the movie. I, right. It's celebrated as one of the the best, but uh, uh, adaptations. But I, you know, I I, I think I think you know, like. They could have had somebody else. Not, yeah. But yeah. Could have, would have, should Could have, would have, should have. It is, you know, as it is, it's... You know, I I don't know. I'm sure some people probably liked it. I'm not one of them. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I Again, there are so many terrible Stephen King adaptations that my vitriol is relatively low on, on, on Firestarter. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do any real violence to the original material. I, uh, you know, I don't think on a production standpoint they cheaped out. I think that... Well, yeah, for, for what they had at the time. I for mean, 1984, yeah. it was a good stab at Firestarter, but yeah, since I think we are on the edge of, you know, a new age of Stephen King adaptations, mm-hmm. if they wanted to take another swing, I would definitely show up. This is certainly not safe. I, I don't know if I would. I mean, I'd read the book, but I, I don't think I need to see another movie version of this. No. Fair enough. It seems foolhardy to attempt to tell the story of it mm-hmm. on network television. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a story about an evil creature that feeds on children. And the book has no problem with visceral violence being held to children. Yeah. In the first chapter of this epically long book, a cute, precocious little boy named, boy named Georgie gets his arm ripped off by a clown standing in a storm drain. Chapter one. This is a horror novel. This is not the universe of PG. This is not the universe of prime time. This is hardcore. 80s prime time in particular. Yeah. So this is 1990. It's 90, yes. That's right. Tommy Lee Wallace, uh, who I talked about not too long ago, has he directed Halloween 3, (laughs) Season of the Witch? Yes. (laughs) Yes. is is tasked with uh, bringing it to the screen. Uh, I was in high school when this aired, and I watched the first half of it. And I gotta tell you, Jason, the week between that first half airing and the second half airing, I really thought about little else. <laughs> I was just so excited by this. I'd read the book, I was familiar with it, mm-hmm. and uh, 
especially when I looked at that first part, which dealt with the kids in Derry, considering that they couldn't deal with things like the house on Nyvald Street, and uh-huh. they couldn't deal with things like, you know, a, a sociopathic kid in the neighborhood who's even more crazy than Henry Bowers. Oh, yeah. Uh, because they couldn't deal with the sacrifice of the innocence that the children must perform in order to escape the sewers, it would seem like too much of the book would have to go. So I'm really, really impressed with the first 90 minutes of this three-hour <laughs> adaptation of It because it is way better than it has any business being. Okay? Yeah. That said, it's hard to say that it's amazing, is it? Right? Because no. I, I would be lying if I said it was amazing. And I would be lying if I didn't say I was disappointed and that the movie was overall somewhat hurt by the casting of the adults. I Among like, other things. I like John Ritter. Mm-hmm. Fine. I just don't think that he fits in this universe. Mm-hmm. Harry Anderson is a sitcom actor, and let him be a sitcom actor. Some of them define Tim Reed, or some may know yeah. Venus Flytrap. Yeah. I think he does solid work, you know? Richard Thomas he needs to can, be in a different movie. Well, it's not yeah. this movie. I, well, I thought he could do it. I mean, he doesn't come from the sitcom world as much. I mean, there's the Waltons. Uh, but I got the feeling that Bill Denborough was supposed to be kind of a cool guy yeah, in the book. Yeah, and you know what this he is not cool, no. He's it was just miscast. not a cool guy. He's just yeah. not a cool guy. <clears throat> he also the kids absolutely fucking nail it in this the adaptation. Kids yeah. The kids absolutely nail it, and the adults let us down. And that is the truth, wall-to-wall, beginning to end of it. That said, I am irrationally infatuated with the novel, with the story, and with this attempt at telling it. I cannot wait. Tentatively, September 8th, 2017. Yeah, the remake. We were getting an R-rated remake from the director of Mama, which is a supernatural film, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, And I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) So... um, because of my love of the source material, I like this movie more than it's worth, and I know it's true. I know that the budget of television hurt the special effects, and I know that, like I said, the casting, particularly the adults, really takes the scares out of the second half. But I can't say enough good things <coughs> about Tim Curry, and I can't say enough good things about the demented and horrifying imagination that goes <coughs> into it. I will now let you okay. speak. Yeah, well, you could, you could argue that... The the three biggest epics that King has produced um, are uh, The Dark Tower, but that's a series. Yeah. So it's, he has way, way, way more Involved. time. Um, so, But that's probably the work of his career. He yeah. might say that. Eight books officially, but arguably all of his books are Dark Tower books. They, they're all connected, yes. Yeah. There's allusions to it in all of them. Uh, the Stand. Yeah. Um, and It. Yeah. It is potentially the most commercial of the three. If you are just like violent horror fan, I, I, I think it will satisfy you more than um, a post-apocalyptic epic or, you know, Dark Tower is a mix of many things, science fiction, fantasy, and I'm looking forward to what they're going to be doing with that in the film world. Um, Hopefully, you yeah. know, Hopefully, I'll I'll be Everyone's happy with just it. Crossing her fingers. Yeah, I, I think they've waited this long. They're going to try to do it right, but um, and so I, I have memories of this miniseries. I don't know how I 
stumbled upon it. It must have been on CTV at eight or nine or night. And uh, in the first scene I saw was the one you described with Georgie. Right. And that was horrifying. Um, I remember going into high school uh, for more than one reason, scared of going and having to shower. Right. You know, and so there's there's that sequence uh, where the clown comes out of the drain. The drain. Pennywise comes out of the drain. Um, and I guess the effects at that time, I wasn't as particular as I am now, but uh, uh, because when I look at it now, it's, it's almost comical. And that was my problem watching it now, I, I guess, because I had all of these moments, even the sequence with the adults, um, uh, where they go to the Chinese restaurant and the, they get the fortune cookies. Like, yes. that's the only only moment of levity and joy for these characters in this yeah. uh, two-part miniseries and they're having a good time and then and then their worst fear comes out of the uh, fortune uh, cookies. or some symbol of their worst fear um, so I, I think there are some moments some scenes some images that work really well but watching it again this time I was just I, I was so, so, so disappointed with it. And I thought, well, of the adult performers, as much as I like some of the other people you mentioned, I like them. And I remember at the time being excited to see the judge from Night Court right. in there and yeah. and, uh, and John Ritter. and um, But I, I was most looking forward to seeing Tim Curry's performance um, through more adult eyes. Uh, and I did not like his performance. And I was so, so surprised that I did not like his performance. Hmm. Because um, it just seems like they were relying on like his teeth coming out or whatever, which are described, of course, a lot better in uh, in the book. And I, yeah, I just you know it was it was distracting. It, it, it this time watching it, I felt like it was in a a different. It was perhaps in a different movie than the rest, and maybe that's more of a problem with with the adult actors. Right. And I am hoping that this this remake is going to be a little bit more. I would argue what I that, want. I mean, obviously, we disagree on Tim Curry because I would argue that he acts all of the adult actors right the fuck off of the screen. <laughs> but I don't think that they just depend on Tim Curry for their scares. There is a scene in the first part of the movie where uh, Stuttering Bill is looking at a picture of his younger brother Georgie, and the picture winks at him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a genuinely chilling moment, and uh, yeah, that like, and that's it's an, and an something aspect. that does work within the purview of prime time, right? There's nothing overtly gross or horrifying or violent about that. Mm-hmm. It's just fucking disturbing, and in a way, that's where the book lives, and that's where my fandom, you know, kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. lives. Um, I think it's interesting that this creature, this entity, this it thing, has been there for so long, and it's never really had. An adversary before, yeah, and I think it kind of sucks at having an adversary because <laughs> honestly, like uh, this is like I've read the book a few times through, mm-hmm. and I sort of come up with this little theory like it's not used to having its power questioned at all. Yeah, it wakes up, it eats, it goes to sleep. It wakes up, it eats, it goes to sleep. Yeah, and there is some sort of force. There's a power in dairy. It's recognized in the book as this force that they call the turtle that helps them, that binds them together, mm-hmm. that is the reason that it cannot single them out and kill them off. Yeah. That other all together, kids, they're... All powerful. other kids that remain solitary or that run away from home or that don't have a circle that they play with, 
they get killed, but the losers stick together and they uniformly are able to unite and almost kill this creature. It's troubling, and this is both in the book and in the movie, that as adults, I remember thinking when I was reading the book, when they were adults, I was so terrified that they wouldn't be able to see Pennywise. Because yes, there I was that possibility. That was the rule, right? Mm-hmm. If you, yeah. if you were an adult, you didn't get privy to that world. And uh, the book goes into this pretty grisly sacrificing of their innocence that they have to do at the end, which basically destroys the power that they had. Uh, so they're no longer kids anymore. They basically come out of the sewers, having killed Pennywise and their childhood simultaneously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they wander away from each other in the days of this new world that they've uncovered. Again, none of that shit that they can get into in a TV movie. No, no, no. Well, like I'm not sure they'll be able to get into it in the the remake. Yeah, I, I, I don't well, know maybe, how you maybe, do it. maybe. But I. My notes for the people who are going to adapt it is. Age the kids. Instead of having this happen over a summer, have it happen over their high school career. Mm-hmm. Between grades 9 and grades 12, let's say. And the story can start and stop yep. throughout uh, intervals. That way the kids can age enough that what happens at the end is not completely horrifying. And uh, you can do that thing where some kids age differently. Part of the reason that the Losers Clubs is made fun of is that they've managed to get that deep into high school and basically they're still kids. And they have to be, because only kids can face this evil. Well, Again, I think I sep- separately, when in the adult section of, yeah. of the story, they've forgotten. Like, yeah. Like they have Bill, to be Bill talks kids. about, I, I forgot about my brother. I forgot about everything that happened. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think it, and it, it's interesting. It's the, it's the, the town librarian yeah. who stays in the world of children and imagination is the one to bring them yeah. together. Yeah, I'm gonna go deep into spoiler territory here. Yeah. I, I told you there's a movie that I can't be rational about, and this this is would a, be it. I cannot. This would be it. <laughs> this would be it. I, I just love the source material too much to not love the movie, and I recognize that it's it's fucking full of holes. <laughs> I get this, but I know the movie's probably already made. Here are my notes on how you improve it okay. <laughs> next time you take your swing. Okay, age the kids. Like I said, mm-hmm. they can be teenagers by the time they go into the sewers. They're teenagers, but they still act like kids. Play it that way. Kill off Richie Tozer. I think that if it's going to be a heavy victor, like a, a heavy hitter of a villain, he needs to make more of a dent in the Losers Club. He just, yeah, he's, he's kind of useless. Yeah. And but don't they all have to be together? Except there's a there's a flaw in that. Yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, they're bonded together in order to face the evil. And this is, again, right out of the book. Stephen King has an issue with ending things with gigantic explosions. We'll be talking about it again later. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not the climax of the story. I would keep it bared down, keep the climax within the kids. In the book, it's a... Well, the kids in, in one timeline and the adults in the other. In the actual story, the climax largely happens telepathically between Bill Denborough and this creature and I get that you can't do that in a movie mm-hmm. but it can't be a giant claymation spider and it can't be a giant explosion <laughs> because yeah it's, it's so weak in that part and the whole three hour movie leads up to a claymation spider and it's oh, so no. disappointing <laughs> well, I remember I didn't see the second part of the miniseries um, or I only saw part of it, and then I, I talked to my friend about it something like the next day at school, and he said, "Yeah, in the end it was this big giant spider." And I'm like, 
Well, yeah. that was the build up to this this you know great because I obviously hadn't read the book at that point. Right. And, uh, um, and yeah, I, yeah, I just you know I. I, I, I agree with you the second half and particularly watching it this time the second half hurts it, it hurts like okay. the, the images I have of this thing that I think work and make it uh, you know um, a great effort given given the time that it uh, it came out on and the fact it was on network t- TV with all of the sources they were mostly from the childhood part yeah um, yeah you're right that's that's where it's most effective. There are isolated moments, and that's where where these things work that, that work for me. Mm-hmm. Little little segue scenes. There's a scene where Tim Reed wakes up in the library in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and we follow some bloody uh, or some muddy footprints from mm-hmm. the front door to where he's sitting. And there's a balloon there, and the balloon just pops. Yeah. Again. Yeah, I love those balloons. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Uh, and like that's so simple. It's so basic, and it's so scary. And you know, uh, that's where the movie works. Isolated pockets and moments work, and that first ninety minutes is such a great adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should wrap this up. But the other things that I would say... We didn't talk about acting at all. Well, yeah. I guess we talked about Curry, but... Uh, yeah. uh, the other thing, Audra, the character that uh, she's a celebrity and she follows Stuttering Bill to Oh, Jerry. yes, that's right, yeah. I never understood, and it's true in the book, how she can see it. She has no business being able to see Pennywise. But again, if Pennywise somehow knows that she's valuable to Bill, she should be fucking killed. The movie should end. Oh, Richie Tozer should be killed. Audra should be killed. The the asthma guy is killed. Tim Reed's character can go on because anybody who mm-hmm. leaves Derry becomes instantly successful. We have learned. Yeah. Ben and Beverly can go. Yeah. And Bill stays in Derry to keep the fires burning for another thirty years. Yeah. That's the end of your fucking and, movie. And I don't know if he's gonna do a sequel to any of this. Well, I if do, he did, it's due right now. I do want. It originally happened in '56 and '86. Yes. So here we are. We are here, and it's not. I don't think it's coming out. So yeah. I don't know. Um, one more thing, I just want to do a little shout out for the kid actors, uh, Jonathan Brandis. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a tragic good. story there. I mean, because yeah. he uh, he really looked. It, it was almost like a young DiCaprio type of presence. Like he he could have had a, a career, but and he did that Chuck Norris movie with Sidekicks. But, yeah. Yeah. And then he I got mean, past his, Teen Beat age, and nobody was interested anymore. Uh, well, and I mean, it was using Hearts War, but most of his performance was cut out, and that was just too much for him. So, he ended anyway, up taking his own life. Yeah. yeah, but just to watch him in there, he drives a lot of that film, as well as does Tim Curry. But Tim Curry isn't in his have as much screen time as Emily Perkins plays Beverly Marsh as a child. She did a nice job. Some people will know her from the Ginger Snaps movies. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. And she's a good Canadian actress, so yeah. I love to give her a shout-out. This is the first time I saw her, probably the first time most people saw her, but she's been working in Canadian TV her whole life, still mm-hmm. does. So, yeah. yay! Awesome! Uh, Canadian-made, Canadian-produced. It's not great, but I think anybody who watches the movie will be able to, to wet their, 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 <laughs> their taste buds for hopefully a good, proper R-rated version. And... If you read one Stephen King book, even though I have issues with the ending, read it. It's a tome, but it will keep you. And the mini series made me want to read more, and what made me want to read it. So I guess it served its purpose in that yeah. in that regard. Sad Beaumont has a secret. I know all about it. 
a piece of himself he keeps hidden. You just don't want to give up George. You become attached to him. Locked away until he needs it. These behaviors could be interpreted as schizophrenia. Away from the light, safe in the shadows. I wrote those words and I have no recollection of doing it. But sometimes secrets take on a life of their own. Thad Beaumont thought he didn't need George Stark anymore. The American way of death. That's it. He served his purpose. Time to lay him to rest. But George is not about to go quietly. You really don't realize what you like when you write those books, do you? It's like watching Jack turning to hide. Ah! We're here to question you in connection with a capital crime. Evidence says you did it. George Stark has somehow come to life. Hello, George. I've come closer to believe a ghost story than this. You're talking about a man who never was. No! He wants to take over your life. Can't you see that? Based upon a book by Stephen King comes George A. Romero's masterful vision of a nightmare come true. Are you ready? Just waiting on you. The Dark Half. So the dark half of the novel was basically Stephen King kicking out the crutches of his, you know, own past. He mm-hmm. published several novels under the Richard Bachman label to see if they could be successful. And they largely weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Until... But it, it's interesting that, you know, he was such a prolific writer that he was able to, you know, do this little experiment. Um, and I think that, you know, in the book he sort of balloons it out to the next level. I know a lot of people are kind of dismissive of both the book and the movie as it just being kind of a dressed up slasher movie. And, you know, I guess the A, B, and C of the plot involves a dude with a razor blade cutting a lot of throats and on this wicked path, sort of path of vengeance. Mm-hmm. But I think it does a little bit of short shrift to this character, Thad Beaumont, and uh, him embracing his dark half. Mm-hmm. And the fact that when he finally decides to put to bed that dark half, when he decides to shut the books on that entirely, it manifests itself physically and comes back for revenge. And in typical villain factors of Stephen King, he's simultaneously incredibly powerful and yet completely helpless. Because the person he wants to kill is Thad Beaumont. Yeah. And the only person he can't kill is that moment. George Romero has a good relationship with Stephen King. Uh, I'm a big Creepshow fan, mm-hmm. and he wrote the screenplay for Creepshow 2, which was uh, a lot of adaptations of Stephen King's short stories. And he almost, almost made a version of The Stand in the 80s, and he almost, oh, almost made good. a version of Salem's Lot, and he almost, almost several times. This was the Stephen King that he actually got to mm-hmm. make. And he almost, almost didn't because there was a lot of production problems and uh, money issues so Mm -hmm. that uh, some cuts were made towards the end where Romero in his typical renegade, I'm a rebel filmmaker status, kind of felt the studio took the movie away from him after a certain point. That said, I've seen a lot worse George A. Romero movies than this. And for the relatively low praise that I see given on The Dark Half, I think it's a fairly well-made movie with an underrated performance from Timothy Hutton. But I am willing to hear a second opinion. Well, I think we're going to be pretty... pretty. We're going to be agreeing on this one a lot more. Okay. I think the book's underrated. Uh, I think it actually deals with a lot of complex stuff. Killing 
his uh, pseudo name off was one part. The other was dealing with his, his dark half, King's dark half. We're talking a lot about the books here. Alcoholism. Uh, but the alcoholism, the drug use and all that. Uh, he doesn't remember writing the Tommyknockers, for example. And Cujo. Yeah. And, Cujo. Yeah. Um, and, and he also... Uh, he writes about horrible things. We we talked about it with it, with children's arms being ripped off, yeah. and um, and so he has to tap into that dark half. I think Stephen King is a person. I don't know him. I would love to meet him, but yeah. uh, if he's listening, yeah, definitely, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely totally listening right now. Absolutely, um, he cribs ideas for me all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I I've heard he's. A nice guy, yeah. like he, like he's a he's a really kind of maybe even a gentle guy, he, he but he gets it all, it all out. out on the page there, yeah. um, and and to be successful he has to do that, and then through his character that's this is what this is about, but uh, it's to a point where he just can't do that anymore because um, it's affecting his family, and and yet where's the money coming from? from? It's coming from you know the pop horror that that Beaumont is is producing. Um, I want to correct something I said earlier. Okay. I think I, I said the best opening in the six films was, was Children, Children of the Corn. Corn. I'm going to correct that and say the dark half. <laughs> well, yeah, I was uh, bring that up. Yeah, I, I, I because you know, uh, yeah, I, and I was I, I was kind of putting my head around like the '80s Stephen yeah. King movies versus the ones in the '90s and yeah. beyond. Um, th- yeah, the opening is just amazing and this. this having this boy has this uh, uh, seizure essentially and he's he's getting this brain surgery and then as they're cutting into the brain an eye pops out yeah. and it's it's his twin which and he swallowed up twin. he yeah. swallowed his twin um, and I, I just thought that and, uh, and the all the birds the sparrows attacking the hospital uh, and the use of music in there um yeah, so uh, it, it's it's absolutely remarkable. I I I feel that this book was very very true to the novel. Um, I I don't know if I'm biased in this way, but I've always liked Timothy Hutton. Yeah. Um, going back to I think of ordinary people. I think he just won his Oscar too early. Is the problem? He he did, but I I don't think he was any worse. I, I'm I'm thinking of there's a what was the movie Travolta, the General's Daughter. Right. Uh, he had the small role in that, but I thought he was very good. He was better than the leads yeah. in it. Um, uh, and I, I was just so happy to see him Typically. in this role. I think he he can tap into kind of the the husband, family man side, but he can also tap into a real dark place yeah. um, and balance that out nicely. Like, because, you know, uh, his twin is horrifying. He's yeah. a horrifying person. And I know there's some makeup effects in there but I think in the performance too and they almost you can tell it's the same actor but it's di- they look like different people yeah no, I mean, they were he's very such a good he's such and a good actor and this is what I mean it's a lot of times done where characters are playing twins or playing two roles mm-hmm. it's kind of a flashy thing to do so sure get an Oscar nominee unfortunately Tim Timothy Hutton seems to be like the guy lately who is giving the credible performance in movies that aren't so credible yes uh, which is too bad but uh, I think that he really kills it in here. And I couldn't tell you which performance that I preferred between the two, to be honest. I think that the George Stark character is an easier one to play. He's basically a badass, and he's got a bit of a southern accent, mm-hmm. and he kills people and really enjoys it, right? 
you know, Thad is much more of the guy who's the worm on the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that he knows Stark so well, and indeed Stark knows him so well, is that on some level they are the same. They person. are the same person. Yeah. And uh, they have both, I think, interestingly, have all the pieces of the puzzle except for one. And that one piece of the puzzle is usually the one that's most important to them. Uh, Thad understands that these sparrows here are some sort of harbingers that are going to come to take one of them away. Yeah. Whereas George has no fucking idea what the sparrows are, but he hears them and he sees them and they terrify him, right? But he's too much of a badass to let that go, let that card go, right? But he knows that if he can convince Thad to write another book, that he will take over and yeah. he will live. Yeah. And so he has a very clear path as well. Uh, it's it's much more layered than people give it credit. Well, it's about every human being. <laughs> we all have a good half and a dark half, and we wrestle with that every day. You know, I and some abandon one or the other. Yeah. Um, very much. But I, it's unhealthy to repress your dark half and not acknowledge your dark half. That's why we have. The Bill Cosby's in the world right now yeah. is like supposed to be good and nice and moral all the time. Well, he obviously had a very, or has yeah. a very Negative pronounced dark side, side yeah. but he couldn't get away with that because of his public image. Yeah, he was busy condemning a bunch of other African American stand-up comedians like Richard Pryor and uh, Eddie Blue. Murphy uh, for swearing or something. Yeah. In the meantime, he's doing all of this. You anyway, your role model, goddamn. It's a little bit off the uh, <laughs> the point well, of the dark out. But think Bill Cosby is about as scary as Stephen King at this point. <laughs> Scarier, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was so impressed with that performance, George A. Romero. This is where, to me, the the director makes a difference. Yeah. Um, even some bits that you know are are a bit much are just so well directed and they kind of gloss over like the some of the makeup effects are dated a little bit some of the special effects are dated but not much not i mean bad. not it's you know again back to hudden the game back to hudden for a second there's one other point i wanted to make about uh when he's stark you know, we were talking before about over-the-top Stephen King performances. Yep. There is some license in there to take this guy to the moon and back, yep. and Hodden doesn't. Like he, he, he just has the right balance so of he how can still be horrifying scary. this is. You know, he it's it's a much scarier performance um, than I think. Unfortunately, I we're going to disagree on on Tim Curry as Pennywise, yep. which is like, oh, you know, I like he's either. I'm really friendly, over-the-top clown, and then ah, I've got horrible teeth, you know. Right. Um, uh, I, I just, I, I really, really, you know, with fresh eyes, but I remember I liked the movie when I saw it. Uh, the Dark Half, I'd say, is one of, probably one of my five favorite of his novels. Nice. Um, um, but I'm not sure many people would say that. Hmm. Uh, and I because like it's it. small, and it seems like George A. Romero, this is a small story for him to do. Yeah. It would have made sense for him to to uh, to direct the stand, mm-hmm. um, but he he does such a nice job with this. And uh, it makes me wish that Romero got more big budget movies. Yeah. A lot of the time, the problem with Romero is that he just won't compromise. He yeah. kind of shoots himself in the foot. Mm-hmm. He says, "In order to make the movie your way, you're going to have to make a micro budget film now." Because right. Yeah. If you want a producer to back you, they're going to want to have a say in the in the cut or in the script. And if you're not going to move on that. I mean, I, I, I'm of the mind, if, if you've made enough classic movies as Romero, you should be able to make whatever you want. It's weird that he can't, but 
every now and then when he does get to make a big budget movie like Land of the Dead or like yeah. like Dark Half, I like see he's got game. Usually he he's working with no budget with amateur crews and he does the best he can given the circumstances. When given the tools, he can give really good movie. But I think that's a lot to do with the hot and cold of Romero. Mm -hmm. The other performance that I wanted to talk about was Michael Rooker. Oh, yes, uh, yes. As Alan Pangborn, because he's the main character of Needful Things, which we're going to be talking about next, that, yeah. that, that character. Uh, I miss this era of Michael Rooker, to be honest. Yes. Nowadays, he's sort of the over-the-top, you know, there's nothing subtle about me. This guy made his career from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, playing an entire role super close to his chest. Same thing here with uh, this uh, Alan Pangborn. Like, he should be driving us crazy at what a bad mm -hmm. copy is and all these ridiculous decisions that he's making. It's better realized in the book in a lot of ways than in the screenplay is mm -hmm. that when he comes to arrest that Beaumont and he's come to arrest a lot of people, he believes that. He has no reason to believe that. All the evidence says Thad does it, had done this crime. But he just believes that, and as he's never questioned his gut before, he chooses not to question yeah. it here. And I think Rooker does a nice job of it. The movie, it, the credibility of it stretches more and more. Once the bodies start piling up, this guy needs to be, be doing something. I don't know, but <coughs> but, but this is probably and this character actor Michael Rooker. He's such a like so big now. It's like mm -hmm. I'm Michael Rooker <laughs> all the time, and I'm like, yeah, I like Michael that Rooker. That's like and soul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I miss I miss you keeping it keeping it in. You know, this is probably the most morally correct character in the he's ever played universe. because he's <laughs> always playing kind of a. And I, the other thing I'd mention about sort of in the the history of Michael Rooker, uh, he's part of my favorite movie of all time JFK okay um, and I just remember his scenes it was such a great ensemble cast and he like his scenes were so strong and stuck with me for years and then I, I it was late after that I discovered Henry Portrait of Serial Killer and he doesn't get the chance to be the lead you know that much and I I think he he could <laughs> and if he was given a role where he's just more is demanded of him. I think it, you know, would be the right director again. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, I, yeah, I really liked. I, I, I like the casting. Amy Magdan, uh, Madigan. Madigan, thank you. Um, who, interestingly enough, is Ed Harris's. Uh, are they still together? I don't know if. They're, yeah, I no think. That, anyway, that's Ed Harris's wife there, who we'll be talking about, who played Pangbor in, uh, in Needful Things. Um, She's not given a whole lot to do, but I also don't always remember like her actress. given a whole lot to do in the book. So yeah. and I always like that actress, but basically, yeah, yeah, she's scared for her husband and needs to protect her kids. Yeah, she was in Field of Dreams, and yeah. it was a similar type of thing. It was actually in um, uh, the Ben Affleck movie that she was in, uh, Gone Baby Gone. This she was able to play a, a, a less pleasant character. Yeah. And she does have, like, a... Moxie to her. He kind of. She know, does. Yeah. <laughs> you dig her. Yeah. Um, yeah. Throughout the, the casting is absolutely solid. The filmmaking is absolutely mm -hmm. solid. Don't just dismiss the dark half as a slasher yeah. movie. It's basically where I begin and it was. It's 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 a good movie. And, and Julie Harris has the most kind of two dimensional role, but she makes a lot of it too. Like she's great in there. Too, that's as well. the the professor. Yeah, the professor. 
who helps out with the yeah. information as to what a psychopomp is. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely some exposition. Scenes. A bit, but uh, and she sells it. There's one murder sequence which I'm still not sure if I can get my head around the math of how Stark just manages to be there. She's all over. Yeah, when he he shows up in the doctor's office, like Timothy Hutton's <laughs> literally in the middle of having a conversation with this guy, and he gets his throat cut in the next room. Last time we saw Stark, he was in fucking New York. Yeah, like, it was like <laughs> he was—he was, uh, yeah, he was all over, uh, yeah. all over the Northeast, and it ain't perfect, but it's a fun watch, I think, in a reasonable adaptation, and uh, it's going to rank high, at least in this list of movies. For yeah, me. it's. I, I think people, more people, should check it out. It lost money in the box yeah. office big time, but uh, yeah, it's it's worth watching. Castle Rock Entertainment and Stephen King invite you to visit Castle Rock, Maine, a quiet little town whose population has just increased by one. Do you believe in the devil, Father? I guess I have to. You can't have one without the other. What's he look like? What the hell does he look like? May I take this opportunity to welcome you to Castle Rock on the good Lord's behalf? Why not? So where are you from? Ohio. I've been in this business a long time, and I've learned the pleasure of offering my customers what they really need. He came here to destroy us. Oh, you wish it. There have been two murders and an attempted suicide in this quiet little town, and Mr. Leland Garner's at the bottom of it. You are disgusting. I like that in a person. Everybody that's got it coming is going to get it now. The young carpenter from Nazareth. I knew him well, promising young man, but he died badly. A famine here, a flood there, a little bloodlash, a broken heart. You can't win. I've got God on my side. So I've been gushing pretty hardcore about Stephen King, haven't mm -hmm. I? I mean, I, I've a, I'm a big fan, unabashedly. Yep. But I'm, I, I, I will admit that he can be problematic. Of the books, Stephen King, that I've read, Needful Things might be one of my least favorites. That hurts your feelings. It does. Uh, here's the thing. This tale of the destruction of a small town, uh, this one that we're very familiar with, if we're fans of Stephen King's mm -hmm. writing, uh, Castle Rock, uh, I think was done much better when it was called Salem's Lot. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, and uh, I think the book is trying to have fun, and the movie kind of latches on to that, almost playing this whole sort of Dante's Inferno-ish sort of, sort of tale with a wink, a little bit of fun, like, let's enjoy ourselves with this sort of macabre black comedy. But uh, my problem with the movie, and it echoes in the book, although I think it's less so in the book than in the movie, is that Leland Gaunt, as played by one of my favorite fucking actors, Max yes, von Sydow, yes. shows up to open the shop Needful Things, and he's clearly this demonic figure, and he's making these Faustian deals to all of the members of, or all the members of the community of Castle Rock. And all of the characters are so black and white so manipulative, like easy to manipulate, and so candy cutter Stephen King, that even though when I read the book I had not read it before, it felt like I'd read it before. Hmm. And it's heartbreaking because we we uh, were reintroduced to Alan Pangborn, and he's had tragedy in his life. Mm -hmm. In the interim, his wife and his daughter have been yep. killed off in a car accident. Yep. 
which is kind of a bummer. And uh, he is still the sheriff of Castle Rock, and he is working up the courage to propose to uh, his girlfriend, played by uh, Bonnie Bedelia. Her name's Holly, I want to say. Yes. Uh, And uh, we are first sort of introduced in that sort of night good-natured main way to all of the denizens of the community. And then we watch them become corrupted and then largely die. Mm -hmm. And then there's a big explosion and then credits roll. And Larry doesn't feel anything. Hmm. And I want to feel things. I don't think the acting's bad. In fact, there's some great acting in the movie. I think there's some isolated good scenes, but this is where I hung up, both in the book and the movie. Major events would happen. Major characters would die, and I'd feel like, I should feel something. And I don't. And if that's the case, I can't get super excited about endorsing needful things. Hmm. Where do you land? Yeah, I'm I'm in a very different place. Okay. a couple of things. I, I seem to like the ideas, and I, I went on about it with the dark half, where it goes beyond the story that he's telling. And I, I do think, and I, I, I wanted to mention it a little bit with uh, Children of the Corn, um, but you could pretty much mo- most of his literature is about small towns, whether it's small towns in Maine or anywhere else. This is just for me. All right, I don't mean to offend any anyone. Okay. I mean, you know, I have relatives from small towns. Small towns creep me out. All right, uh, <laughs> quite a bit, uh, you know, um, and so that's why I think it's I'm drawn to his work because I, I I'm not sure how Stephen King himself feels about small towns, uh, but there's all there's it seems like in all these towns there's at you know underneath. There is this kind of, there's a lot of good, but then there's this kind of uh, destructive pattern where people are judging each other and there's all these stupid little fights that are going on. It's all very petty. It's very petty and it would be easy to be able to exploit that um, and create chaos and that's that's what Leland Gaunt does. and um, that's what the devil would do. Take these superficial things, and some of them are not as superficial, but superficial things that people want um, and can't afford, and say, oh, well, you just do this harmless little prank. And then this little prank leads to this one, because I did just this whole, this whole ripple effect. The, the whole premise of the book worked for me, and in some ways, Stephen King is almost trying to destroy the small town. Um, and I don't know if Castle Rock is supposed to be Bangor, Maine, because I've heard that's a... I, I'd love to go there someday, just because of him, I, but I've heard it's it's a very guarded yeah. town. Uh, it's, it, it's a creation, but it's based on a real place. What that real place is is debated, but it has been the home to many Stephen King yeah. stories. And my, my favorite of, of his novels are in Castle Rock. So. The Body and Cujo being two yeah. memorable ones that are also set in Castle Rock, but there's a bunch. They're, they're, they're terrific. And I think maybe King was sick of Castle Rock, <laughs> and that, and he decided, okay, if I'm going to... I'm just going to level this place. Yeah. I'm not sure the movie levels it as not much as King movie. does. Um, but I really like that. Um, I really like the premise. I went along with it. The movie as well has a terrific cast. Um, but uh, Alan Pangborn, again, played by Ed Harris. Ed Harris, at this particular time, he just looks like a decent small town 
sheriff. Mm-hmm. He walks into the store to meet Leland Gaunt, and so what can I get you? Oh, I have everything I need. Yeah. You know, and th- that's, that's the type of person answer. who can who can battle the devil. I yeah. mean, is I'm just satisfied with my life. I have a good life, and and he's, and satis- he, and he's had such tragedy in his in life. Spite yet of his tragedy, he doesn't need a. He doesn't need a, a Hummel figure, or he doesn't need uh, he doesn't have gambling debts or whatever like the J.T. Walsh character. Another Stephen King character who had lost his wife and daughter in a car accident would have been like a violent alcoholic, yeah. or spent the rest of his life raging against the gods for you know the injustices done upon him, you know. And you know, Alan just remains a decent character. Yes, and but Harris does such a good job of capturing that, and then getting so frustrated with. Uh, everything is happening, and he keeps he maintains it. Like I, I, I left a major city so that I could come here, so it would be more peaceful. He picked the wrong town, of Absolutely course. Absolutely, um, but the wrong town. Uh, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that had happened there, and so. Uh, yeah. But uh, Stephen King does repeat himself, and mm-hmm. he's definitely guilty of that here in the characters. The corrupt politician, mm-hmm. don't call me Buster, played memorably by J. T. Walsh is a character that we've seen many iterations of. Um, the the dead zone, and yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that everything good and bad about the movie, I think, can simultaneously sort of be wrapped around the Nettie character, played by Amanda Plummer. And I, I loved her performance. I don't know I what like, you thought about I, it. I like Amanda Plummer a lot. And I've said this before. She's always at 11. So you gotta be careful yeah. how you cast her, yeah. and in this case, she's well cast because that mm-hmm. character is on the edge of crazy. It goes more into it in the book, but in her backstory, this precious item, this figurine that yes. she wants, was shattered by her husband, and that the shattering of the figurine—he'd been belligerent and shitty to her her whole life. But breaking that figurine was the step too far, mm-hmm. and she fucking kills him, mm-hmm. right? But it's never proven. And uh, no, she gets away with yeah. it. And this is another Stephen King archetype, the Dolores Claiborne sort yes. of character, yes. who has committed murder but has made peace with it in her own mind. And uh, if you you know all the ins and outs of the stories, maybe she's right too, right? Maybe she is. The point is, Nettie is a hair away from crazy, and we know it. Mm-hmm. And Gaunt sees it and exploits it, mm-hmm. and. From the second that character is inter- introduced and set up, uh, me as a Stephen King fan knew exactly what to expect. Yeah. Now, maybe if I didn't, the impact would be felt more when, when the shit plays out. Mm-hmm. But all of these stories are going to dead end. All of this setup is not necessarily going to pay off. I have a problem, and it's happened in a lot of his books, and they change it when they adapt it into movies because it's problematic. He likes to end things with giant explosions. I mean, spoilers. In Carrie, she doesn't just destroy the high school. She destroys the fucking town. Yeah. The stand ends with a big explosion. Half of Derry explodes at the end of yeah. it. Stephen King goes to this fucking well again and again and again. And guess what? He goes there again here. Uh, but like I said at the beginning of the review, he wrote this one of his first novels was Salem's Lot. Yeah. And it was this, except for replace the devil with a vampire. Yes. And I think Salem's Lot has more interesting characters, more compelling narrative, and better payoffs mm-hmm. across the board. And it was written 30 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just think that this is fairly light-grade Stephen King for my money. Um, and the movie is, I guess, and just you guilty. Like the, performances. the movie is just guilty of being reflective of that. I love the performances. Yeah. I love Ed Harris. I love, J.T. Walsh. I love Max von Sydow. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
J.T. Walsh is one of those few character actors who can pull off a Stephen King villain and still maybe like him. Like, yeah. Stephen King will make bad guys that are so bad that they stretch credulity, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you don't believe that anyone is that overtly shitty. You just, like, at some point you just have to roll your eyes. And it's a trick in adapting Stephen King that not all screenplays cover. Even in the dark half, uh, George Romero is very loyal to Stephen King's writing and yep. his adaptation. So when people say, ask Mama if she believes this, that's mm-hmm. right out of the pages of the book, and it hurts your ears when you hear it mm-hmm. in the screenplay. A lot of the stuff you can course correct when you read a book, because you filter it through your own mind. Yeah. But you hear it through the filter of a not great actor, or it just the line itself being strange to say, it echoes harshly, you know? Buster is one of those characters, yeah. but because J.T. Walsh is genius uh, I, yeah. I enjoy Buster I even enjoy how evil he is he's just like way yes. past but, but then he goes from being like this really miserable evil paranoid character and the paranoia is the big thing that the trigger yeah. yeah the big trigger for everything that happens um, but then he becomes this I think the payoff to him being so big and so over the top at the end is earned yeah. and it's not earned in many of these movies I mean, he's he's, he's driven he, because he's, he's killed his wife, and that's another spoiler. But he's yeah. killed his wife um, in a very violent way, and now he realizes what he's done, and he becomes this like this baby, um, and he's whiny and everything towards the end. Um, and I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure other actors would have handled that as well as, well as he did. Um, Amanda Plummer again too, like she's. She can be so over the top, and you know, Paul Fiction. Just be fiction, careful how you cast her. Just be um, careful how you cast her. That's all. But I, I didn't, I didn't mind her. I, I, I liked Turner in playing this role. Liked Ed Harris, um, and I, I think they do a, a good job. It had less impact on me than when, when I first saw it. I saw it in theaters, and I had read the po- the book around the same time it came out because it came out pretty, pretty quickly. Pretty yeah. quick. Same with Dark Half, really. Yeah. Um, and it didn't have as much impact this time around. I think the climax in particular is not as brilliant as I may have thought when I was when I was younger. Um, but I, I still go back to those performances and I go back to the basic idea and uh, it, it, it works for me. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, but it's not a great, great film. Interesting side note: uh, the director of the film uh, is Heston the son of Charlton Heston. Yes. So, and he there only a few make, guns in the movie. So yeah. he gets to make movies because he gets to make movies. Well, I looked it up. Movies. I think his first movie was a, some version of Treasure Island that his father was in, or something. Yeah. I, yeah. So he hasn't done a lot since then. No, it's not no. a badly put together movie. No, I think way. it's I very professional talk, yeah. compared to some of the, some of the other ones we were looking at. Um, I, I I just thought this, this most of this holds up. Yeah. Um, um, it was ninety three, something like that. Yeah, ninety three. So I mean, it's it's been a little while. I think most of my problems with the movie again are reflected in the book. My friend Matthew and I reviewed a much worse movie than this called Sometimes They Come Back. Uh, oh yeah. And I said that in a way, some of the times they come back is like every single Stephen King story mm-hmm. kind of blended into one. As far as, you know, it's revisiting ghosts of the past, the bullies that are like yeah. greasers. Yeah, and that's like right. All of these elements that you see again and again and again and again are in Stephen King. Mm-hmm. 
well, that's Needful Things. And I like Stephen King enough to say, like, I like Steve Needful Things, but it really feels like a book he could have written in his sleep. And for the, to be the towering end piece, denouement to the Castle Rock cycle, I found it disappointing. Um, but again, I bring the baggage of that. The movie's well made, it's mm -hmm. decent, it's, you know, it tells the story more or less without the complete over-the-topness of the third act of the yeah. book, but it, it gets it all out there. Um, but and again, it's a standalone movie. I think it's it's good. Yeah. I, you know, I, I almost wish that they had massacred the town. I mean, that the, the end is very, very just different. Get her done. Um, just get her done. And the the movie just doesn't do that. It's just kind of. I also well, I did worse. I did worse damage in a few other places. I'm going off to my next town. I'll see your son in what did he say in 50 years or yeah. something like that. Um, apparently, the original cut of the movie was almost three hours long. I um, believe it. Yeah. And when they tested it, it tested kind of meh. So they oh. cut about an hour out of it. Oh, okay. And they tested it, and it tested kind of meh. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if this was like maybe there's an alternate cut of this where there's missing pieces. I kind of doubt it. I just think it's fine. I I guess <laughs> we, we we gave you it as your nostalgia this piece. Is yours. This one's my nostalgia one. <laughs> um, very much so. Dark Half was nostalgia as well for me, but in a different way, and I think we're in more agreement about that one. But yeah, no, I, I like Needful Things, and once still again, do. Once again, Larry fails to speak rationally because the same A web of mystery. Jonesy? Yeah, babe. You be careful. Be careful of what? Stop where they're going. The worries me. It's what are they running away from? Form the design of an alien invasion. I've quarantined the entire area. Nothing leaves alive. I'll tell you what you should be worried about. A hitchhiker. That's been our greatest fear. Somebody who could pass for one of us. You're not Jonesy. These are Americans. The idea of slaughtering Americans just turns my stomach. This is a weird one for me. I can think of only one other movie that has this many people in it that I like that is as terrible <laughs> as Dreamcatcher. Okay? First of all, let me throw some names at you. Okay? Lawrence Kasdan. I stuck to the big chill. So excited when I saw heat, his name. Right? Uh, you know, he wrote Raiders of the Lost Fucking Ark. He's not guaranteed quality, but Lawrence Kasdan to me, pretty safe fucking bet, right? Screenplay, William Goldman. Yes. William Goldman adapted Misery. Mm -hmm. William Goldman adapted Stand By Me. Yes. These are two of the finest adaptations of Stephen King's writing, yes. period. William Goldman wrote The Princess Fucking Bride. Yes. Now let me move on to the cast. <laughs> Has anybody heard of Morgan Freeman? Who's Morgan that? Morgan Freeman, yeah, he's a pretty popular actor these days. At the time this was made, the no-name in the cast was Damian Lewis. He's huge now, thanks to... Or uh, Thomas Jane, no, those two, yeah. yeah but Damian Lewis was a known, yeah. He was basically a no-name actor yeah. at the time. I think a few people knew Thomas Jane, but like Damian Lewis was just a blind guy. I think ba Band of Brothers had come out just before that, so yeah. there's some buzz about him. But, but yeah. 
Uh, and it's funny he uses British accent when he's playing the evil alien. But we'll get into the <laughs> we'll get into the unbelievably stupid plot in a few minutes here. I'm just gonna go on to this list. Of you can names. describe this plot, can you? Yeah. Well, I will try. Thomas Jane, Damian Lewis, Timothy Oliphant, Tom Sizemore, Donnie Wahlberg, Jason Lee. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, it's ridiculously stacked with actors that I like. I remember reading the novel of Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. and I remember even thinking as I read it, this is not Stephen King's best work. No. But I bet you it'll make an interesting movie. And holy shit, was I wrong about that. Because despite this collection of talented people, this movie is a straight-up debacle. <laughs> I think... A it, laughable at points. It, I mean, it comes yeah. close to just an out-and-out catastrophe. <laughs> The only movie I can compare to it as far as level of talent to level of disappointment is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh, okay. In which Kenneth Branagh, Francis Ford Coppola, Frank Darabont, Robert De Niro got together to just take a huge shit on film audiences everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am not mincing words in Dreamcatcher. I am not a fucking fan of this movie. And I want it to be. I want it. Oh, I like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a lot more than this. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, now, uh, okay, starting with the book again because that seems to be what we're we've been doing. Yeah, uh, this was the book he wrote right after his accident. The As I understand one. it, he was in his hospital bed. He was recovering. He wrote it by by hand, like by he, hand and candlelight. In, in candlelight, so it was the most painful. He was in pain. It's a painful way to write. Yeah. Um, and it is a very angry, angry novel. Um, and it, it has bit. some good stuff in it, but then it, it goes really wrong early. And so as I read it, I I thought, no, I, I don't think this is going to be a good movie because they're always a notch worse. Right. And I don't like this book. And so if they make it, it's going to be worse. But then I started seeing the coming attractions and the teasers, and then I saw the names as you have just described. <laughs> like, like Lawrence Kasdan... Okay, maybe Lawrence Kasdan <laughs> can make something of this. Yeah. And William Goldman can make something of this. And and I was confused why Morgan Freeman was in it, and I was trying to figure out which role he had. And then when when we'll I saw it, then I was like, that. oh, okay, that sort of makes sense. I mean, uh, the entire time I'm thinking of Robert Duvall yeah. uh, in Apocalypse Now when I was reading the book. and. Yeah, the movie is um, similar to the book. Everything seems fine until we get to um, the cabin. And we get into the cabin about 20 minutes or so into the movie. So I, I like these scenes where they're introducing all these characters and their lives, which is, again, in a lot of Stephen King material and the childhood business. Yeah. This one was one where I thought he everything was thrown in, and then some stuff were added. Yeah. Uh, I and I, I don't know if you want to describe all of the elements of this thing or or well, not, but we we, we have uh, <laughs> telepathic children. We have a uh, um, a special needs uh, boy who uh, um, has sort of these powers, and um, and then uh, there's always. As always, these bullies that are, when this, this kid's discovered, they're unbelievably horrible. And then we see this kind of a, a version of the Losers Club come and Absolutely. save 
save this kid, and then they all become friends, and they have this tight psychic bond. Basically, that's then, what I was going to say. So the, it's then, it, that, that's okay. It again, um, and then there's a cabin. Cabins are always great yeah. locations, um, but then there's all of this gross-out humor that starts to happen, and then this creature comes. Kind of from a bowel move, movement. The shit weasel, I believe. Yes, that's what that's yes, um, and then that leads to aliens and leads to uh, once again government agencies that seem like they're, and uh, somehow, somehow some of these characters can be inhabited by the alien and then still be alive and be in their brains trying to hide. <laughs> It, you're having trouble. Of, I can I, feel you floundering. It's yes. not your fault. It's not your it's fault. Just a, it's, it's just a way, way, way too much. It's a mess. Yes. A group of kids have a shared experience in Derry, the same town yeah. of it. Yeah. Actually, in the book, as they drive past the standpipe mm -hmm. in Derry, they see graffiti that states, Pennywise lives. Yes, I remember fact. that. That's um, so cool. So, yeah. But basically that group bond between these five guys is very much the Losers Club yeah. in a much less interesting way. They get to keep their powers throughout their adulthood. Yeah. They're all a little bit psychic. They can communicate to each other. They can predict when something may be good or maybe bad is going to happen. And they're all vibing really hard and they're all thinking about their friend Duddits. Mm -hmm. <sighs> okay, well, here's the thing. Um, the Duddits character is the thing that the most pisses me off. About oh, both the book and about the movie, mm -hmm. but maybe a little bit more because I've recently, uh, my, my son was recently diagnosed as uh, autistic, mm -hmm. relatively late in his childhood, later than you would anticipate, so maybe a trigger for me, mm -hmm. I will put that out there. But I am so sick of autism being treated as a superpower, yeah. and that's the way it's treated in the book, and Stephen King has done that in other books too, The Regulators comes to mind, yes. and, and in Rose Red, and yeah. a few other places, the autistic as psychic or superhero, he goes to that well way more than I am comfortable with. But the movie makes it so much more offensive, it's terrible. because Duddits is not just autistic in the movie, he's a fucking alien. I think I might have been able to sit back and tell you, this movie is so insane that you should watch it because this many talented people produced something so insane. But that last twist, twist when we see Marky Mark, oh, Mark well, no, 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 Wahlberg, Donnie Wahlberg, Donnie Wahlberg yeah, yeah. When we see yeah. Donnie Mal Wahlberg morph into an alien and Duddits has suddenly been an alien the whole time, that is unbefucking forgivable. That is terrible. And Lawrence Kasdan should have known it. William Goldman should There's have known it. There's a lot of intelligent people <laughs> behind this. Yeah. And they, they, this movie, of the ones we are reviewing, this is not 1983, where people are just not understanding. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's so offensive, and I, I think the performance is terribly offensive, too. And, like, the, the service he plays to the plot, I would have put past it. But the fact that he's actually not of this fucking world for some reason, when I rewatched it for the podcast, slapped me in the mm -hmm. face. I was like, this was incompetent and this was disappointing. Now it's actually making me mad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? the, the, the only thing I can think, and this is me, maybe I'm being very, very kind to Stephen King and everybody involved. The only thing I'm thinking, and this doesn't make any less offensive is that this is the savior 
for the world, the only power they have to battle these these mm-hmm. evil aliens. But it's not enough. Like the characterization, the writing, it's it's so so bad. That isn't an alien in the book too. I want to make that. Clear. Oh yeah, that's right. He, he isn't in the cancer. book, but but yeah, he dies from cancer yeah. before the end of the book, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, so, but but he, he had special not, powers yeah. in the book. He, in the movie, yeah, he becomes this. Kind of, but he it's knows still... about Mr. Gray since he's a little kid. He's warning them that this is going to happen 30 years later when they're 12. Another one of the reasons, and I'll get away from the Duddits thing, because obviously it's a, it's a sensitive issue. There's a lot of other stuff to criticize in this stuff. besides that, but that is that is a big one. They spent a lot of time and a lot of money making sure they got an A-list cast to play the adults, mm-hmm. and I think that they might have dropped the ball on the kids, because I think we might have cared more if the scenes with the kids were more credible. And they're not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the movie version we saw of the It, which had half the budget and probably access to a lot less people, mm-hmm. you know, if it's Lawrence Kasdan casting the movie, uniformly the kids were more convincing. Well, if they had taken the money for the special effects and the over-the-top third act, then put that into... I also just can't... It's, it's more in the... There's more about the kids in the yeah. book, too. Quite yeah. a bit more. It will make you like them. So that as their adult versions are dying, we feel it. Whereas... Timothy Oliphant character died. Whatever. You, know? you feel sorry for him because he's not very good with women, which I'm was glad, kind of strange. I'm glad Jason Lee's character died because he had the worst dialogue of the whole fucking movie. Now, some of that is Stephen, Stephen King, King dialogue. They did take that out of the book. I've talked about it in the previous review. You know, sometimes being loyal to Stephen King hurts you. You can autocorrect for that in your head, and he's just a guy who talks like an idiot in your head. Actually hearing poor Jason Lee trying to say all these terrible lines... He doesn't deliver them well, but I'm, but not, I'm not sure I don't how know he could how you do it. I don't know how you do it. This is a big old fuckero. Yeah, nobody shit, talks like Different this. Day is not as cool as Stephen King seems to think it is. I mean, I like to think that maybe he was the influence of the meds that he was under as he was writing he the book. He could be, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is the first book he published since the accident. So Hollywood was like, welcome back, Stephen King. We're going to give you royalty treatment for this new book. Mm-hmm. And it didn't deserve it. The other thing, and we're already like 12 minutes into this review, but I cannot underserve just how gross this is. Not that I have a problem with Stephen King books being gross, but this weasel that gets uh, shot out of the hunter. horrifying. And there's not for the right reasons. Yeah. Jason Lee's character is sitting on the toilet and he's got this pacifying knee that he wants to chew on a toothpick. Oh, I was good talk. Yeah. It's the least credible scene, and this is both in the book and in the movie. And I know Stephen King personally is really proud of it. But he wants to pick up this toothpick so bad that he risks his life for a toothpick. I don't believe that, first of all, as, a, as an excuse. But secondly, that whole bathroom reeks and is covered with blood. And red, on the ground. and red alien fungus. And you're going to lean over and you're going to pick a toothpick off of the ground to chew in your mouth because you can't wait for two minutes for your buddy Jonesy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the gross-out stuff is definitely gross. Like, I mean, as Stephen King has said in the past, we tend to get all of our really bad news in the bathroom. So, so uh, setting, like, I, I guess I understand the horror aspect of setting something that visceral there. But it's cheap, it though. seems really cheap. It, it seems is so gross and so B movie that it should be in a trauma movie, not a Lawrence Kasdan movie, mm-hmm. right? And when we're not even done there, there's another scene later on after that where Timothy Oliphant's urinating in the snow and the creature erupts in the stream of urine that yeah, he's peeing, and it's like they double down on it. It's so off, like. Well, it, it, yeah, it would be something like. 
a, a cheap laugh for kids type of movie, but it's in this horror story. Um, the only thing I can, again, I feel like I'm defending this, yet I, I, I hate it, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think what they're trying to establish with that toothpick business, even though it's totally illogical, yeah. is that this is, like, that, that, that character is so stressed all the time that he, this, he needs to be have a toothpick in his mouth um, and we see that I think in the flashback as well But we, and then he's getting really really nervous having to sit on this toilet while this alien or, or whatever it is we don't know it's an yeah. alien at that point and, an and, and so he has to have it's an affectation he carries he has to have it be like a cigarette for yeah. some people it'd be like um, yeah. cracking I don't know cracking knuckles for other people but he so desperately needs it at that moment, but it it doesn't make any sense. No. Like, why why would you do that? Like, you, I mean, they don't have the situation under control at all. But that's the closest to that they have the situation under control. Now, yeah, and and uh, like Jason Lee's terrible in the movie, but uh, I know you're a bit more sympathetic to him than maybe I am. Thing is, is that most of them are terrible in the movie, dude. Like, good actors. Damien Lewis. I had, you know, this was, I, 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 I actually thought I spent a long time thinking that he is overrated, and and this movie is one of the the reasons because the moments when he's switching between himself and the alien with the British accent are they're so badly done, it's, and his facial expressions are ridiculous. And I get it, the alien doesn't know how to act like a human being. It's, it's unintentionally comic, but. I will give this to Damian Lewis. He's doing the best he can with some really bad material. Uh, I don't know how you would play that. Like reading that script, I, what am I? How? Be more subtle. Yeah. I mean, like as we were talking about Timothy Hodden, who had to play a dual role. Yeah. I mean, he and he had more license, I think, to be over the top than Damian Lewis, yeah. and he he f- found the right balance. Thomas Jane is interesting to me too because I don't think Thomas Jane sucks as a rule, but I think he kind of sucks in this movie. Uh, the first time we yeah. see him, uh, he has a blowout with uh, one of his clients, it's the psychiatrist, yeah. and then he attempts to take his life, and it's interrupted by a phone call. And right away, I just wasn't believing Thomas Jane. I, I, I don't think he's suicide. Yeah, he's suicidal there, but it's almost like this... I, I don't know. I, I don't know why... There's no trace of that for the rest of the... Yeah. Um, it's also an interesting, I think, hiccup in the screenplay, and I might be wrong about this, but don't watch the movie to find out. Uh, yeah, because he puts the gun to his head and is about to commit suicide, but uh, the Damien Lewis character calls him and interrupts. Mm-hmm. He talks to him, makes plan to meet the Damien Lewis character, mm-hmm. and then before that can happen, he gets hit by a car. The Damien Lewis character has an accident that's gives him an injury incredibly similar to the injury that Stephen King himself was suffering as he wrote this. The interesting thing is, is that when we jump ahead like six months to the camp, mm-hmm. there's a scene where he's walking to the cabin by himself, and he says, "Just yesterday, I had a gun to my head, and I would give anything to live an extra day." Well, according to the narrative of your movie, mm-hmm. it was that was six months ago, yeah. or else he tried to kill himself again just yesterday. Either way, how fucking sloppy is that? Unless there's some deleted scene where he continue to be suicidal? I, I, I don't know. I continue to yeah. be amazed at how everything went wrong in this movie. Like, And again, maybe the, maybe there was no good movie to be made of Dreamcatcher. No. Maybe it was just the you know end result of too many meds and Stephen King and a lot of pain. 
but like I am astounded at how bad it is. Morgan Freeman oh, is bad in this movie. He is. Morgan Freeman is never bad. I'm sorry, like, but yeah, he's he can bad be. He does a lot of bad movies, yeah, but, he's but he's the best thing about them, them. Yes, right. But he, they tried to cast him against type, and I'm going to be this badass military extremist who, you know, always going to go to the nuclear option first. And I did not believe him for a second. Tom Sizemore looks like he's half asleep for the whole movie. Well, and he was he coming was. back from some sort of a recovery? <laughs> yeah. or This was the day and age where every movie Tom Sizemore was in, he got killed in. I think with the exception of The Relic, every movie he was in yeah. in the 90s, he died. <laughs> this was a toned down, though. I mean, he was not his... Uh, no, again, like... No violent, angry self. I mean, Everybody was happy for the paycheck, but once they read the script, I think everybody was pretty checked out. Well, I mean, if I'm, I'm putting... If I'm a young up and coming, because a lot of them became successes on TV shows. Yeah. After this, and if I'm given the opportunity to work with Lawrence Kasdan and uh, yeah, no, and no. I mean, you know, Stephen King, like every all these people involved, this no. will give me a lot of. As I it would, did, it gave them some exposure. And, I would have been in Dreamcatcher with a big smile on my face, but, but I'm still well, just shocked because it led somehow to Homeland for yeah. Damian Lewis and uh, and and hung there for Thomas Jane, and so yeah, I. Jason Lee was already established. I'm yeah. not sure he necessarily needed this in his life. But, but again, the guy who wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark is adapting the new yeah. Stephen King novel, and they want you. It felt like they were assembling these guys from the big chill. Yeah. <laughs> or something. like they, it, th That part felt like Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah. Um, but then the aliens and all of this other stuff, I mean... It, I'm going to put the blame here on King. Again, I've been a King fanboy mm -hmm. this whole time, but I think that Dreamcatcher just it was, was not going to work. Was uh, stillborn. And uh, if these guys can't make it work, I can't see anyone else fucking making it work. No, no, not at all. your least favorite of these six Stephen King adaptations and why? Okay, I walked in here with one idea, but I've decided to change it after oh, our wow, conversation. So number six for me is Lawrence Kasdan's Dreamcatcher. Just because the amount of money they had, the amount of talent they had, this should have been better. And yeah. nobody's been afraid to take one of his books and change it, as we've discussed. Yeah. So if they needed to change it, sure, in fact, they did change quite a bit but they didn't change anything didn't that it. needed to be changed didn't and then, help it. yeah no so that that one is that one is the worst um out, out of fairness so that'd be number six number five for me is mark l lester's Firestarter. Okay. i made clear that i did not like this thing at all um yeah and i i that's the one i was walking in thinking oh this is the worst but I don't think they had as much to work with. I mean, they did have a great cast. It's sim those movies are pretty similar, but... Um, I would watch Firestarter it, three times in a row before would I would watch yeah. Dreamcatcher one more time. I'm, I'm not sure I'd watch Firestarter <laughs> ever again. I might read the book, though. I mean, yeah. that's that's the one I walked in I had not read, and maybe I'll appreciate Rain the Tree more. is still problematic, but it has still? a momentum that the movie just doesn't, mm -hmm. so I would recommend it. Yeah, well, I also would have liked... Um, you know, George C. Scott, I, I, I like how, you know, I'd be happy to have him in my movie, but not in that, playing yeah. that character. So, 
Um, okay, for number four for me, uh, and it probably won't be that popular, but I, because I, a lot of people love it, it scared them. Um, but I just watching it again, it didn't scare me. I thought it was ridiculous. Um, second half is terrible, and I, I I don't think the children's section was enough for me to be convinced. Um, I I am looking forward to the remake, as you said. I think its best format would be an HBO miniseries where they could, you know, they they don't have to curb the violence or anything, and they're limited by time here. So, Um, third surprised me. I didn't think I would like Children of the Corn as much, and I hadn't watched it beforehand as much as I did. The opening got me Linda Hamilton's performance. Uh, again, the end is absolutely ridiculous, but actually the first two acts worked for me, and I think it's maybe I, I maybe went along with it because I had such a nice warm feeling of, from, the, <laughs> from the first two scenes to, right. to, to go along for a while, despite like most of the children other than the, the one little girl were, uh, were really really awful, but yeah. I mean they're children, and so then it's up to the director to get the performance out of them, and that didn't happen. Fritz Kirsch is the director for that one. Oh, and for uh, it, Tommy Lee Wallace, we talked about. Uh, Second favorite, and I don't know if it's nostalgic or not, um, and when you first showed me the list, I thought this would be number one, but Needful Things. There it is. Yeah. Uh, Frazier Clark Heston, the director, the cast, the idea, I went along with it. Um, It's not particularly horrifying, but I just think it's a clever way to, to end that Castle Rock chapter. And my number one was The Dark Half, uh, directed by George A. Romero. I think it's the most true to the source material, um, but it's just a good movie. It's just a, it's a solid movie. I, I went back and looked at how it was reviewed um, when it came out. It got terrible reviews, well. lost money, and I, I think they really missed it. They really missed the mark. I, or maybe they came in with a hate on for this film. But I don't uh, know what he could have done to better adapt the move, the book. Like, it's fairly faithful in its adaptation. Yeah. There's, you know, there may be things here and there that I would change, but I mean, beat for beat, I think that it, it, it does justice no. to the source material. We do interestingly find out, I meant to mention this in the review, but I will mention it now, in a subsequent Stephen King book set in the same area called Bag of Bones. Yes. We find out that Thad Beaumont has committed suicide. So apparently his dark half was still lingering or he mm-hmm. still had some issues or maybe the destruction of his dark half had a bad fallout for him. Who knows? We don't know the details around it, but we do know that that character ends up taking his own life. Well, you can't be all good all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's so my list. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, we have very different lists. But I don't think we're going to get in serious fights. I think the closest we come to genuinely disagreeing is probably Children of the Corn. But uh, for the most part, I was a little more severe on Needful Things than I maybe wanted to or needed to be. It's just maybe one of those cases where it's just not what I wanted it to be, and yeah. that's not fair. <laughs> but uh, in sixth place, comfortably, yes, absolutely, <laughs> is Lawrence Kasdan's Dreamcatcher. Wow, you guys. Like, Genuinely, wow. <laughs> he, he needs to get back to Grand Canyon or uh, some, of his, uh, some of his other movies. I don't know what's... And I, he hasn't done many movies. I, I mean, I lately. guess he was trying something different. Like, this wasn't an obvious Lawrence Kasdan joint. No. But, uh, woof, no. Dreamcatcher number six. And I, I am, I'm, sh- I'm as shocked as anyone <laughs> that there it yeah. sits. 
But all the way in fifth place is where I put the children of the corn. And for me, if I, I'm not going to debate you. I'm not. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. get it. Yeah. I get it. If half of your cast is, as you yourself said, terrible, that's going to hurt your movie. And uh, if they can't really pick a line between, you know, we're not going to give you the actual story as it plays out. And in order to make the movie, you know, we're going to make the characters, you know, likable, which is kind of the opposite of what. I don't know if they did the story justice, but I do know they've tried twice now to make this into a movie, and maybe it should just be a, an installment in an anthology film or something like that. Maybe yeah. this is like a creep show type of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This maybe just needs to be short form, and then I think it could be intensely scary. Oh, the, the short story to me is freakier than anything. Yeah. You know, I haven't strip. watched any of the sequels, yeah. so I'm, I'm not. That's okay. That's no, my I, job. I, I, pro- <laughs> <laughs> I would if you asked me to, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's the where you get mad at me. All the way in fourth place is uh, Needful Things, mm-hmm. and for me, it just it's like a flavorless meal. It's a fast food dinner that I ate and forgot. It just did not stick hmm. with me, and I would say comparable things about the book. I mean, he's written worse books than Needful Things, but he's certainly written books that have stayed with me. And, you know, as this being the sort of culmination of his Castle Rock stories, I guess I was wanting more. But I think the film, if the film was even more true to the book. It might even hurt it might, more. You think it would hurt it more? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I think it would have... Well, again, I, I'm probably the only person in the world that wants to see the three-hour version of Needful yeah. Things. Well, maybe someday it'll happen, because apparently there was a longer version of it. Uh, Firestarter, again, it could be my affection for the novel that's helping me get through the, the, the book, or through the movie, but, uh, you know, I like this idea of this intensely dangerous, sweet little girl, and, uh, you know, it, it's a cool light show when you see it on, on TV, these people being lit up by fireballs and uh, ignited. In the book, it's really horrifying what these people go through, mm-hmm. like, when they feel their, you know, <laughs> this fire starting to take hold of them it's a bad way to go um so i think it works enough but i'm not excited about it yeah i mean it's not something that involves children like pet cemetery yeah well yeah. way way better yeah you know okay well i'm not rational about it i'm just not i'm just not because i totally recognize that the second half of the movie doesn't really work mm-hmm. and if i can say that the second half of the movie doesn't really work can i say this is the second best of these adaptations Maybe I can. Well, maybe in this this group of six. In this particular group of six, I'm putting it in second place because of how much I love the story. Mm -hmm. And because, uh, honestly, I think when I watched it as a teenager, I think it was 13 or 14 when this aired, uh, I could get really into it, and Mm -hmm. it was sort of safe that it was in a PG environment. And I think that's how I liked great movies. What were you trying to do, and how close did you come to it? Mm -hmm. This was trying to tell the story of It in a PG environment. For that, it is successful. That said, I think it is flawed in its premise Mm -hmm. because it is a capital H horror novel and it should be bloody and it should be terrifying. That's Uh, interesting because you were about the same age when you watched it It when I read and and watched Needful Things. There you go. And it worked for me at that particular time, so... Uh, the reason I'm putting Dark Half at number one is because I have the least negative to say about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the most amazing Stephen King book, but it certainly get, deserves more than it's given. Yeah. It is not just another slasher movie. There is an extra layer of complexity. Timothy Hutton does bring a very strong performance. Yeah. And it's great to see, you know, 
George Romero working with the big boys, you know, being a professional filmmaker, yep. like he should have been throughout his whole career. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think that it's it's solid, and I can't really say you know uh, you should have done this or you should have done that. It it's it's a good adaptation. It's faithful. It delivers. So. So we agree on the worst, and we agree on, on the, the best. best. There we go. It's everything in the middle. <laughs> sadly, but again, I'm less passionate about the middle. And I, as I told you when we started, I'm not rational about it. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite stories. That well, if you were to rate the books, it would be a, to me, it would be yeah. a very different list. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Even though I like Needful Things a lot more than you do. But thank you so much, Jason. It's well, been thanks a long for having time, me. But we're the this. wait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so is I'll give you the final word. Anything else you'd like to say? I'm sure Stephen King is listening. I'm sure he's listening. Um, keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> keep trying. I'm not sure that these were like the six greatest <laughs> King movies of all time, but I think three of them were professionally made. Three were not. Uh, uh, for for me, one was professional. Had professional people that just screwed it up so badly and but you're saying one of these the other days two. it's going to work out for Stephen King <laughs> one day one day his uh, his ship will come and there it went Stephen King lovers that's another episode of Rankin Review behind us please seek out the show at rankinreview.ca Check out an alphabetical list of the movies that we reviewed. Check out some nostalgic back episodes. And, uh, yeah, just have a little poke around there. Also, you can find Rank and Review on iTunes. You can find it on Facebook. We're now on Stitcher. Uh, so spread the word. Give me a like on Facebook. Give me a positive review on iTunes. Do anything you can to show your support and love for the show. As always, I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And thank you so much, you guys. <laughs>